my name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. It isn't often that people get a chance to look at a completed chapter in the history of angling. One such an opportunity is the National Federation of Anglers, which just managed to notch up its centenary before being consumed, along with the National Federation of Sea Anglers, British Record Fish Committee and others, into the Angling Trust. Fortunately for history, David Kent, who I'm linking up with here, and who now sits on the board of the Angling Trust, has agreed to talk about the NFA for whom he served as Vice President in the build-up to the big merger. My understanding of the early days of the NFA was the coming together in 1903 of a small number of like-minded forward-thinking anglers, acting as much as an environmental group as anything else which would ultimately blossom into an organisation boasting in excess of 500 affiliated clubs and a quarter of a million individual members, exercising almost total governance over course match fishing. Obviously, there's a great deal more for the NFA to be proud of. So take us through its history and its achievements leading up to the changes within course angling that would make the combining of course game and sea under the umbrella of the Angling Trust a far more attractive alternative option. Well, I mean, from my point of view, obviously, I came on board with the NFA as a relative youngster in the sort of late 70s, I guess. Up until that point in time, from the very first time in 1903 when the NFA was effectively born by a group of well-meaning people who wanted to particularly further the environmental and ecological sort of elements of fishing because that was important obviously for the future of the sport anyway and at that point in time not being particularly well dealt with and for many many years that was the order of the day and they certainly as out and out volunteers put a lot of time in of their own to make sure that this was some progress year on year and it wasn't really until post-war years really when it started to develop as a more business-like organization but even then still using volunteers and as it went forward in time, they then started to look at the need, really, rather than the desire to appoint paid members of staff. So it was growing, and the interest was growing, the support from angling clubs and anglers around the country was growing, so that it became necessary then to appoint administration officers to look after the, the business side. And that's really where it remained until almost up to the point when the NFA itself decided that um, it needed to go that stage further. In between all of that, I guess one of the key milestones was 1968, when there was a special general conference called at the uh, Railway Institute Club in Derby, and a number of almost um, complete life-changing decisions were taken as far as the NFA was concerned. For example, because of its continuous growing size, they split it down into eight regions to make it more administratively doable, they appointed a secretary-general and officers and staff to support him. They took on a professional accountant, and they also then, for the first time, started to form budgets, and they formed a competitions committee, and all that goes with that subcommittees were formed to deal with the environment and conservation, and later on with canals and such like, and all that came really in quite a rush following that special meeting in '68. In those early days, it was based at, uh, at Hague House in Derby, and that's where the NFA's roots, I guess, pretty well always were from early days. And it was only then, again, as the organisation continued to grow, that it moved literally around the corner into Hague House, which is in Green Lane in Derby. And through that same period in time, post-'68, they started to get an increasing interest in competitions, 
they broke the the one day national as it was and then i i actually fished the last of the one day nationals in 71 on the river seven i think 116 teams took part then that's 116 teams of 12 and from that point onwards then it, that was the first site of 90 team divisions and of course the, again the, the interest was growing and at one point we had the dizzy heights of sort of five six divisions of similar numbers and just to finish the competition so at that time I think 1973 saw the proposal to run the first ever cadet junior international events as well. So that was another sort of very important milestone. Clearly throughout all this, the power base really for the NFA was its member clubs. I mean, although individual membership was always, as it were, something on offer, it was the actual member clubs were were the power base. And at its peak, there were something in the order of 550 clubs in membership. And of course, again, clubs themselves are very much stronger in those days, but there were a lot more bigger clubs. And in essence, the, the sort of, albeit indirect membership of the NFA, if you counted all the members of the member clubs, and even allowing for some people who are members of more than one club, it would boast something in the order of about 400,000 plus members, albeit you know, obviously indirect individuals. But it was this power base that enabled it to do so much campaigning over the years. I mean, it was certainly not a competitions organisation. In fact, competitions was relatively subsidiary, even right the way through until the NFA itself formed part of the group that formed Anglin Trust. Competitions was always important, big shot window, but I mean, a lot of its work from the majority of the officers was about environment, fisheries development, and obviously working in liaison with the National Rivers Authority and, and previously to that, the Water Authorities, of course, who had the responsibility for fisheries. And a lot was gained in that time. I mean, the NFA was very well respected for the work it had done and carried out the first ever formal survey in 1982, I think it was, into the close season. And of course, since that time, we've, we've seen changes along that route in terms of still waters being opened up and then more recently, the option being there for a no close season situation on non-river iron canals. But obviously the close season for rivers themselves remains, the 93-day close season remains in place. And in the short to medium term, I doubt whether that will change. But again, scientific evidence and sound science was always at the back of those decisions, and, and I think that's how it should be. Going back to competition, we have a number of successes internationally, with Billy Lane becoming our first individual world champion, putting a toe in the water of, of international events. Of course, we, we actually ran the World Championship uh, down in Warwickshire on the Avon in 1981. And again, we had an individual champion in the form of Dave Thomas. And then not too far after that period, in the mid-80s, of course, was when the NFA appointed Dick Clegg as the International Events Manager. And of course, since Dick's appointment, we've all seen the, the massive success going right up to the present day, 30 years of it now, when we brought home more medals, particularly gold medals, but we brought home more medals, I dare say, than most of the sports put together. Something that we continue now in the evening angling trust days, something that we still major on when we're talking to Sport England and UK Sport about this medal collection that we're building up and it's, it's immense compared with most sports. And I think because of the success of its home competition as well as the success on the international stage, it's had a, an immense value to match angling generally and, and I think some of the top competitions that we have now, both within the organisation and, and those that are run externally as well, a lot of the sort of foundation for those probably stem from that period in the NFA's history when big competitions were, were very much the order of the day. And of course, as I say, we had, even on our own national championships, we had something in the order of 90 teams of 12 taking part. So it's a big event by any standards. Other issues we were involved with, 
The NFA was one of the first organisations from the UK to get involved in the European Angles Alliance back in the 90s and to this day plays a very important role in how environmental and fisheries related policy is determined in Europe and we've had some very eminent representatives over the years and, and as I say to this day still have. It became obvious though that things were changing and, and particularly as I say angling has a, a sort of a, a problem which maybe many sports don't have insofar as it has to wear two hats all the time because of being very involved, correctly involved in the determination of environmental policy and fisheries related policy both freshwater and in the sea it has obviously and always has had a major involvement with DEFRA and its predecessors but equally because of the sporting element of it the competitions and the development side of things also with Sport England, Sports Council before that, UK Sport and so on and so obviously it was literally batting on two very big fronts nationally but it was sort of in those middle 90s when it became more and more clear that if we were going to make any real progress, and certainly with both of those governmental organisations, where Angling really had to come together in total, really, for them to recognise it, A, a representative of all anglers, but also as a true governing body. We did make the analogy uh, several times, well, angling in the sea and angling on the River Trent, for example, is vastly different. So how can you try and force those two disciplines or types of fishing together when they don't do the same with, with, say, Rugby League and Rugby Union. But um, we lost that argument, and after several years of trying, but eventually, more and more frequently, the angling governing bodies and, and the national organisations within angling were getting together on a more regular basis to pull resources, to pull ideas, and eventually to come up with a blueprint, if you like, that would take us forward, and that sort of just roll over into the millennium. But by that time, we'd already sort of worked together, both as a set of national organisations dealing with the DEFRA side of the business, if you like, but also as the governing bodies at that stage, the NFA, Salmon Trout Association, and the NFSA, the Sea Anglers Association, working together with Sports Council Sport England to put together development plans. And, of course, obviously, it's the development plans that are the cornerstone, really, of government funding into sport. And so that was a critical time. Thankfully, when I was a representative of the NFA on that group, and we put two consecutive development packages in, and certainly angling from that time was more recognised within Sport England, and that was reflected in the sort of funding it received and continues to receive. And since we've got to the final stage with Angling Trust, when, if you like, the complete package was put together, we're now in a situation where angling receives significant funding again nothing to compare with if you like the olympic and top class elite sports but certainly significant funding in terms of where we were 20 years ago it was asked and it still is a bit of a, a head scratcher for a lot of us is why the nfa decided to throw its hat in the ring with the concept of angling trust but as i say it had become patently obvious over the years that we were not going to be treated the same if we stayed as three separate disciplines and so i think we had to bite the bullet probably it's true to say that the NFA and the national executive that were in place at that time were more convinced that this was the way to go than perhaps was the case in the other governing bodies at that time or the other national organisations. So maybe it took the decision and went in sort of heart and soul into it from the outset. And as I say, there is, even today there are questions, well, should we have or whatever. The NFA could have continued on its own, there's no question of that, but it would have struggled, I think, to gain the recognition and the requisite funding from the, the national organisations that angling would have with all the disciplines under one umbrella. 
I think probably because the change was so inevitable that, as I say, we perhaps almost led the way into the unity in many respects. I think that was true. The NFA led the way. And certainly one of the things that we did lead on at that time was the formation of the Angling Development Board, which certainly then, if you like, epitomised all that we were doing in terms of strategic plans and four-year development plans and so on for the sport. And it was a, a critical decision then because at least the formation of the ADB did allow everyone else to get on with with the work that was equally important on the environmental and conservation side. And the NFA, as I say, played a great part in the formation of the ADB. And again, I think for all the right reasons, that was a a good decision at the time. To some extent, you've already answered this question. But with change so obviously inevitable, why couldn't or didn't the NFA simply adapt and carry on? It could have carried on. There's no question of that. It had the resource and it could have carried on. But the principal reason was that the pressure was coming from government level for angling to speak with one voice. And it was almost an ultimatum, essentially, that if we didn't form this unified body, not just to speak with one voice, but a unified body in terms of how the sport was organised and how it was developed and managed, then it would be increasingly difficult to secure the funding needed to develop the junior side of sport and the international side of sport and even any assistance we needed to go with conservation and and environmental campaigns. And that's really where, although it could have happened, the decision just seemed an absolutely correct one at that time to go into this new angling trust, although that wasn't the name then, but into the unified body then anyway. It should be pointed out at this stage that the Angling Trust is a self-appointed organisation and has not been delegated the task of speaking on behalf of all angling. So where did the mandate come from? Well, you are right up to a point. I think what really perhaps uh, the decision was taken within each organisation, within each of the separate national organisations that were before, and there were a number of organisations that came together, not just the NFA, but as I say, Salmon and Trout and NFSA for Sea Angling, plus the National Association of Fish and Angling Consultatives and others. And essentially, they had then taken a mandate from their members to see whether or not there was support there for this concept. And so whilst it didn't sort of talk to anglers singly, each of the organisations that were looking to come together took its own mandate internally at that time. So essentially what happened then was that the chairs of each of those organisations then formed a sort of transitional board and they brought together their respective mandates. And of course, we got to the 5th of January 2009 when they all signed on the proverbial dotted line to... um, play their part in the new organisation, and that's essentially where the mandate came from, I guess. Explain to us a little more about its workings and structure, and why anglers should feel represented by it. It's an organisation that represents anglers in every way that anglers would choose to be represented. I think, as I say, in terms of providing development and coaching for people coming into the sport very much at grassroots level, at the beginner level, right up to development and support for those anglers who go through the whole process of talent pathway development and then into the elite sort of arena, if you like, and and ultimately to represent their country internationally. For those people who aren't competition-oriented, because Angling Trust now has a seat at the table with organisations like DEFRA, the Canal and River Trust, the Environment Agency, and so on, then the environmental and the fisheries, obviously, issues are, are immense. And, say, now more than ever before, 
Anglin is there around the table pushing home those points on behalf of its members, but really on behalf of anglers generally. I mean, obviously you can't be selective on something like that. So basically, whatever campaigns the Anglian Trust are involved with, it's really with all anglers in mind rather than necessarily just members. And I think that's important, really, that, that anglers should recognise that and support it. I mean, it's been a belief of mine right away back from when I first joined that whether or not you necessarily agree with everything that the governing body undertakes on anglers' behalf or its members' behalf, I think it's important that if you participate in any sport that you're actually a member of the governing body, at least anyway, and I think that's important no matter what sport it is. It's interesting to see that, um, and I think probably one of the issues maybe that was a, a problem at the start, and, and it hasn't totally resolved, is the sort of um, the differences, if you like, that came into Anglican Trust from the three main disciplines and the ways in which they were run and the way in which they themselves had a place and had a, a relationship with the respective organisations with which they're involved. And, and, and for example, on, on the marine side, the core issues are the same. Obviously, one of the things that the Anglican Trust is very much involved with is making the case for conservation at the sea, you know, marine conservation zones and that sort of thing. And Anglican Trust is in there with the best of them, making a case for protection of our marine fisheries. And, and, and that probably is something that was never done um not as well and as forcefully as it is with Angling Trust. So again, an argument perhaps why sea anglers should feel represented and feel happy that uh, the governing body is actually there doing it on their behalf. There are some shortcomings. Who hasn't got shortcomings? And, and I think probably one of the things that, uh, and I perhaps just alluded to it really, probably one of the things that was most sort of noticeable and I think still is, and maybe one of the reasons why some people still feel a little bit disaffected, if that's the word. At the outset, maybe, there perhaps wasn't enough done, shall I say, to engage with everyone on each of the disciplines. And so, as I say, some people bought into the idea, into the total organisation idea from the outset. But I think one or two were left behind for whatever reason. And let's be honest, you know, that there are all sorts of reasons. There, are, there, there were obviously lots of things to do with the individual policies and perhaps people didn't see that there was a place for their policies that they'd operated by for many, many years. There wasn't a place for them in the new organisation that they could see. So I think probably, for me, that's the, the single most important thing, that we perhaps didn't get it, or Anglian Trust itself in that transitional stage didn't quite get the engagement with people and anglers in all those disciplines from day one. And, I mean, it was never going to be easy, but I think certainly it was important to perhaps resource that quite highly at that front end really obviously to save some issues further down the line and i think the other thing probably which perhaps and we're talking about anglers supporting it and i think in this present economic climate and i know that might seem an excuse for for many things but uh, you've obviously got to have an eye on especially a membership organization where if you're selling a product you need to identify what barriers there might be for people becoming a member or buying your product. And, of course, cost is one of those. And I think perhaps one of the things that may be at the front end anyway, and it just maybe didn't get quite as right as it should have done, was actually the sort of membership fees and maybe not perhaps... It's never going to be a one-size-fits-all from, from day one. I think that's perhaps what I'm trying to say. And so I think there was probably maybe not enough time given to consider what... Um, would be right for one group as opposed to another in terms of cost with regard to services and products that people saw was that membership fee worth it to them i think that's in essence what we're saying but i think in the last two or three years 
massive progress has been made on this one and the, the membership fees have been knocked around in all sorts of ways and there's different arrangements available for different people whether you want to come on board or, or whether you want to be an associate member or whether you want this or and so it is evolving and I think it was always going to be an evolutionary process but it's obviously important to recognise that as I say it's not one size fits all and you need to understand the actual angling animal if you like and un- understand all the different facets in it and then uh, it's a learning process evolutionary and I, and I think it will be perhaps a year or two yet before everything is right but I think progress has been significant in recent times. We're all the same, life is how it is. We're all looking for good value for our money. And I think one of the things which um, the Anglican Trust has done a lot about in recent times has been benefits, obviously, things like insurance. And I think that's a very important one, really. And, of course, we're on this first year of a period when, along with, if you like, purchasing your Anglican Trust membership, there's automatically insurance cover for public liability and so on, which to clubs is extremely important. Well, it's essential. There isn't an argument about that, particularly if you are a, a water-owning body. But even if you're just a small match group, I think the need to have insurance cover for public liability and even personal liability is essential these days, and uh, we're in that sort of society. And so at least now, in the past year, all of that has become available along with your membership of Anglin Trust. So we are getting there, I think. Obviously, I speak to sea anglers on a regular basis, and I can assure you that most feel the angling trust offers them nothing at all. So what would you say to these people? To be fair, my main involvement with the marine anglers under the angling trust banner anyway has been, if you like, on the competition side. However, the foundation stones of a successful organisation is having strong regions and strong regional presence, and I think... Unlike the coarse side, and to some extent the game fishing side, the sea anglers have never actually got to this stage yet. So it's not disparate as such, but certainly some marine regions are very, very active and the members feel as though things are happening. And it's in those regions, I think, perhaps where anglers are more comfortable with angling trust doing what they see it ought to do. But equally, where there is no marine region, then anglers, as I said earlier, I think, will feel disaffected. And... uh, it was also difficult at the outset as well, I think, because with organisations being where they were, and there was a little bit of, perhaps not political, but interregional rivalry in different ways, you've got also issues like loss of sovereignty and all that sort of thing when you try and bring people together. But I think, as I say, the fundamental reason is that, um, and it's something that Anglin Trust recognises it has to work on and, and, and is doing, is trying to create and then strengthen the marine regions. And I think that will help enormously for those guys who are sea anglers to see better and on a more regular basis exactly what Angling Trust is doing for them. One frequently overlooked problem here is that sea angling is one of the last bastions of freedom to fish as and where you want, unencumbered by licensing, land ownership or other binding restrictions. And as such, many feel there is no representation required. I think that's absolutely right, and it certainly will figure in many people's thinking. I would agree entirely with that. But um, equally, obviously, whilst that knowledge is free, it's, it's free from the shore, of course. You, you know, they have to pay to go out on a boat. But, yeah, I think we have to be ready just in case, because no one really knows what's looming around the corner. But for all we know, them, oh, and I'm not using this as a reason for people to change their opinion, but who knows? I mean, at some point, some local authority around one of our coastlines might say, well, okay, if you want to fish there, then you've got to pay, fellas. You know, I mean, it's unlikely to happen. probably will never happen. But at the end of the day, 
we need to be mindful of the potential for that. I mean, we've seen changes on the freshwater side, which a few years ago we would never envisage. And so, as I say, it does need a collective body, really, to be ready for that and be able to assist. And I'll go back to this idea about marine regions, because I think if people were prepared to form and support an Angling Trust marine region, then I think they would see, as I say, a lot more of what's being done for them. And this argument about, as you say, it's the last bastion of free fishing, well, then we, or the, the Angling Trust as the national body, if you like, at the centre, would have a much more reliable and much more frequent opportunity to learn from those guys locally about any changing issues. And I think it's going to be a two-way street, really, and I think that um, it needs those people to get together in their local regions, and then there can be a better exchange of ideas and, and issues and worries and concerns between Angling Trust at its centre and those people out in the regions. My understanding is that in England and Wales, the public have a legal right of access to roam and to harvest between the high and low water shorelines. It's not my area of speciality, but there is in fact lots of issues and lots of law, if you like, where those sorts of things are applicable. And certainly from the what I've seen of the debates going on between our marine campaigns people and um, organisations, particularly with regard to marine conservation zones, these exactly are the sort of issues that are being raised. And I think you're quite right. I think that it's very easy for something like that that's been in place since time immemorial, if you like, gets overlooked. And certainly when it's easy to get carried away, as people do, with banning this or restricting that, and I think all of these issues need to be borne in mind. And and that's certainly something which our campaigns people are very involved with. Would it make any sense if all anglers, game, sea and course, were forced to have a licence, the monies from which went in total to the Angling Trust, who in turn would be responsible for all things conservation and policing of fishery legislation, allowing the Trust to truly claim to represent all of angling, and consequently have the ear of government? First of all, it's an absolutely brilliant concept, and it's not one that's new. I mean, I remember one of my early days as, as an NFA Vice President, the then president and I went to see the chair of, the, of what was then the newly created the National Rivers Authority. We actually sat down with him when we talked about where Anglin stood in relation to the National Rivers Authority and, and obviously what we saw as the best way perhaps of the future of sport being guaranteed and then made the link between that and the rod licence. And he said to us that he supported the idea 100%, but it was conditional in the sense that he thought that we would need to get have evidence about more individuals being members of the governing body. That, that was his view at that time. But I think just bringing that into the present day, the idea of a link between the rod licence and the administration of the sport and all that involves these days will remain, and the debates will go on indefinitely about that. But I think in the short term, I'm not sure for the reason we talked about it you know, previously, I'm not sure, where, for example, whether the sea anglers would want to purchase a rod licence. But the concept, as I say, is a good one, and it has had some airings over the years with that in mind, that, as you say, all anglers will purchase a rod licence. But certainly, if that were ever to happen, and I think it's a possibility, but it's extremely unlikely, the future of the sport, whatever discipline hat you wore, the future of the sport would be pretty well guaranteed, provided obviously it continued to be managed properly and developed properly. But I think the future of the sport of angling, sea game or course, would be guaranteed. I think one of the ways which we can keep that argument, as it were, right up front, really, is, is for more anglers to join the governing body as individuals. And I think the more that the Angling Trust is able to say we have 
50,000, 200,000 or whatever. I mean, I mean bear in mind that there are best part of a million rod licenses sold already to the freshwater anglers, albeit some are concessionaires and some are duplicates and all that sort of thing. I think really and truthfully, there's always going to be that question asked, well, where are they all? And, and I think although we spoke some time ago about this indirect membership, people see themselves members but only through their clubs, but I think if all anglers were to bite the bullet and, and actually join Angling Trust in their own right as individuals, so that in a year or two's time, Angling Trust could say, well, hang on, here we are, Chairman of the Year, whatever it is, or the DEFRA people, we now have 580,000 anglers in membership of the governing body, let's start talking about this sort of thing. We shouldn't just sit back and wait for it to happen. I think we need to be able to try and persuade anglers and say, for me, whether you think the governing body is doing things altogether right, wrong or otherwise, as a participant in a sport or pastime, I think we all ought to sort of think, well, we should be members of our governing body. And I think that's one of the key targets that uh, Anglin Trust itself must have. And it's not say it's not going to be easy, it's not going to be a five-minute job, but uh, the more individuals it can boast, then I think the easier it will become to be able to force these sorts of concepts, these ideas, through the system. But if we had a compulsory licence with the guarantee that the monies would go back into fishing via the Angling Trust and not disappear into some government black hole as sea anglers fear, that would automatically make everyone a member of the Angling Trust and give you the extra muscle to fight on our behalf. That's right, but as I say, at this moment in time, there are so few anglers who are prepared to join in their own right, it's going to continually sort of create the view that anglers basically aren't that bothered about what the future holds. That's what I'm trying to say, in essence. I think by joining your, your, your gig running body, then you're making a statement, really, to say that we want to try and change the world, if you like, and, and, and I think whichever comes first. I don't think, as I say, it will ever happen. I don't think, for example, that it will ever be all the licence for either. When we met the NRA, it was only with regard to one pound per rod licence sold. You know, you're still going to be talking about over a million pounds a year coming in through that just one pound. So it's significant. I think also what mustn't be overlooked as well is that progressively since the Angling Trust was formed, and it was there before with the freshwater organisation, certainly, but it seriously formed a close relationship with the Environment Agency, and there's already funding coming in in some different ways to some of the posts that we have. Now, obviously, this idea, this concept is being then taken forward and, and discussed at DEFRA with regard to how we can then better serve and better staff up, if you like, the areas for marine angling. So we've got so far, but uh, we've got to go through several stages further. But um, certainly the, the actual income from even £2 a head or something from the rod licence would be significant and give us more clout and an even closer relationship with DEFRA and the AA and so on. But... Um, I understand what you're saying, and I can understand why the anglers see themselves as being a bit disenfranchised, but uh, it's difficult to convince people, I guess. But I think that they need to sort of come to the governing body and, and say, look, what about doing this, what about doing that, what about doing the other? And I think at the moment that's not really happening. We, we haven't got that engagement that I think we need, and I think that's stage one anyway, you know. Like it or not... The NFA and other similar representative bodies are now gone and the Angling Trust has replaced them. So what can we expect from our representatives in the future? I'm not sure when you say representation, do you mean representation at external organisations or representation by the different disciplines on the Angling Trust board, for example? Both. Internally, 
the board comprises people of all different backgrounds, including C game and course, as well as people from professional backgrounds, people coming to the table with skill sets. So at the moment, everything is pretty well covered in that sense. Externally, as I say, we have a, a very strong campaigns team on freshwater, a strong campaigns team on the marine side. There's no splitting of time. So those who are on the marine side, that's what they do. They, they don't then uh, have to put some time to one side on the freshwater side as a distraction. So that will go on and certainly will increase because, as I say, the more members we can get on board, then the more we can strengthen these teams. And every week that goes by, Angling Trust people are out there talking to whoever it might be, as I say, whether it's the government regarding sea angling, whether it's freshwater angling, whether it's the Clyde River Trust or whatever. Every day there's, there's something going on. So much is happening now in terms of representing what anglers require. But obviously, we do need those anglers who haven't expressed an interest in the trust to sort of engage more. But it is a two-way street, if you like. For me, the fact that the Angling Trust is self-appointed still remains an issue. I think that only when all anglers are licensed, with all monies going into one single organisation, which could be the Angling Trust, will anglers, and sea anglers in particular, whether they like it or not, feel represented by an officially recognised and funded body, both with the ear of government and the ability to protect our interests from ecologically destructive practices. But that's just my opinion. Other people, no doubt, will make their own judgments. Leastways, now they have a working overview of the Angling Trust and the history behind its emergence, for which I must say a very big thank you to David Kent. <laughs> <laughs>